1: morning to you, a good Monday morning to you, live from New York. Uh, I'm Richard Quest in for Julia Chatterley, who's having a well on break today. This is what you need to know as we start a new week together. Europe is reopening, but there is confusion in the UK over exactly what that means and how it's going to work out. In Washington, the outbreak has reached the White House as Donald Trump is trying to reopen uh, the US economy. We'll talk about that and see exactly who is infected and what extra steps and extra measures may be taken. And the mouse is back in the house in Shanghai. We'll be live at Shanghai at Disney in China where the reopening is taking place, the music is there, and so is our David Colmer. It is Monday, and this is Fast Move. As we start a new day and a new week here in New York, this is how the markets are looking in terms of the US futures. They are pointing to a lower open. The market opens in half an hour from now. Investors are closely monitoring the business reopening that's taking place around the world. It looks like it'll be a sharpish Well, let's not overstate it, but a sharpish open down just over 1%. In Asia, the Nikkei, the Hang Seng, they all gained as the markets there got into business. Shanghai and Kospi dropped. There are new virus cases on the rise in South Korea, and that took its uh, toll on the market there, which is what you can see. Oil prices are lower as well. This is even after Saudi Arabia announced a further cut but the market is not looking for any support because it does see that the reopenings will be longer and slower and perhaps not as uh, effective as people had think- thought. Uh, by the way, those, um, the earlier oil earlier oil was down some 3%. It's now rallied up a bit. And to Europe, where the markets are open and doing business, European stocks are lower. The countries are reopening their economies, uh, but it's slow and it is painful, and that you're seeing now in the reflection, particularly in those DAX. And the Paris Cac Coron. Businesses are reopening across Europe, but it is spotty, it is sketchy, and it is by no means as efficient Let's getting to the drivers today. Some shops, some services and primary schools are allowed to reopen in France, but stricter rules remain in Paris. As is often you'll hear me talk about in many capital cities, you'll find that is the case. For example, in Spain, there's limited reopenings of restaurants, small shops and the like, but there's no easing in Madrid and Barcelona and to the UK after the prime minister Boris Johnson. Uh, laid open, laid laid, laid out the beginnings of the UK's opening plan, a a longer, more detailed 50-page plan will be presented today. Clarissa Ward is there. The one thing, Clarissa, that seems to have come, let's deal with the UK first. The one thing that seems to have come from the UK plan is there seems to be confusion. Exactly what has been opened and what has not.
2: Well, uh, you're exactly right, Richard. Confusion reigns here in the UK because there seemed to be an abundance of what you might call mixed messages in the prime minister's speech last night, particularly with regards to which workers can now return to work, who should return to work, and how they should return there. We heard the prime minister, Boris Johnson, saying that if you cannot work from home, but you can safely work at your at your office or whatever structure it is wherever you work and he spoke specifically about people in construction and manufacturing you should now return to work, but there seemed to be confusion about whether this should happen on Monday, as the prime minister indicated, or whether it should happen on Wednesday, uh, as his deputy uh, Dominic Raab seemed to indicate in an interview with BBC Radio earlier on today. There was also even more confusion, Richard, because the prime minister said that if you are one of those people who can go back to work, and again we haven't said exactly who they are, you should try to take try to avoid taking public transport. So if you're in construction and you're working on a construction site in central London, how exactly are you supposed to get to your place of work? He suggested potentially walking uh, or taking a bicycle, which of course for the vast majority of construction workers is probably not a feasible or likely way that they're going to get to work. So everybody is very much looking forward to this report. It should be issued any moment now, 50 pages, allegedly going through in sort of forensic detail and outlining what this return should look like, what days it should be happening on, what businesses are are affected, and when they will be affected. For everybody else in the country, Richard, though, who was waiting, hopefully, to find out that they were going to get some more re- uh, restrictions lifted, some more freedom returned. Well, this headline from Britain's beloved tabloid, The Sun, really says it best. Ready, steady, slow. In other words, much and do about nothing other than being able to go out multiple times a day to exercise in parks and even sit on a park bench as of Wednesday very little likely to change in terms of meaningful substantive change as a result of any of the measures that the prime minister outlined last night, Richard.
1: Clarissa Ward in London, thank you to Washington now, where the president, of course, now faces two members of the administration at the highest levels, uh, a press secretary to Mike Pence and his own valet, both of which have tested positive for coronavirus. And now, of course, what does that mean? Well, obviously, the president and the vice president have both tested negative. John Howard is in Washington. So what does it mean that the president's valet tested positive? The vice president's press spokesman tested positive? How does that change? Oh, and as a result, of course, the, the, the major leadership of the CDC, the NIH and all the various bodies, they are also going into some version of their own self uh, self-isolation.
3: Well, first of all, Richard, there's concern for the well-being of the president, the vice president and other members of the White House staff. Uh, Kevin Hassett, who is a White House economic advisor, was on television yesterday saying it's scary to go to work and you can tell why when you look at the nature of the West Wing. It's a very closely packed uh, den of offices, Uh, people, small offices uh, closely packed to one another, Uh, small spaces, narrow hallways. Uh, So there's some uh, risk associated simply with moving around. On a larger level, nationally, uh, what it does is it damages confidence that it's safe to reopen. What does uh, a business reopening, an economic reopening, require? It requires consumers, businesses, investors to feel that it's going to be safe, that economic activity is going to be safe. And when people can see that people very close to the president and the uh, vice president, working in the White House where the uh, finest medical facilities are available, where you've got Secret Service protection, where you've got daily testing. If it's in there, how do people elsewhere feel confident? And whatever the governors say who are uh, trying to reopen their economies or whatever President Trump says, if that confidence isn't there, it's not going to work. And uh, this is a blow to that confidence.
1: Uh, John, uh, that... I mean, the difficulty we all know in terms of such close quarters. But what extra measures can or should or perhaps will they take to protect the, the, the president and or the vice president? Um, I mean, this person, these, these various people have been close to them at the highest levels. Is there more that they can do? <clears throat>
3: Well, uh, over the weekend, White House aides were doing contact tracing on Katie Miller, who's the vice president's press secretary. I think they've done the same with the White House valet. Some uh, of the White House valets who were not previously wearing masks in the West Wing are wearing masks. Some Secret Service agents are wearing masks. The president and the vice president themselves have not indicated that they are going to wear masks, in part because the president wants to keep up appearances that uh, things are getting back to normal, even though uh, you've got this uh, uh, virus still uh, coursing through the country. There are good things happening. Testing is expanding in the United States. The positivity rate is going down. But there's still virus out there. There's still risk out there. And uh, that will be dramatized for the American people again tomorrow uh, on Capitol Hill, where you've got a United States Senate committee leading a hearing. And all of the principal members, the chairman of the committee, and the three top public health officials testifying are all going to be testifying from quarantine because of their exposure to people who had the coronavirus.
1: John Howard and Washington, I just thank you. Thank you, sir, for putting that out. Now, in China, the Disney Shanghai has reopened capacity levels will be sharply lower, only 30%, and those who are there will have to obviously follow social distancing, there will be temperature checks, and masks will be required. David Culver, our correspondent, is also there. After all the miserable stories that you've had to cover were from Wuhan and beyond in terms of China, this is a breath of fresh air. What is the mood in the magic kingdom of China?
4: You are so right about that, Richard. This is. After four months of covering, obviously, what has been a very difficult story. At the same time, when you're here, I think a lot of the folks share this as well, there's this cautious optimism. You know, you don't want to breathe too easy that things are in the past and grow too complacent. And that's the reality for management here as well. They're trying to make sure that they've put in the proper measures so as to keep the attendance limited, make sure that social distancing is maintained as well. Now, CNN got rare access as they were preparing for this day, which has just wrapped up, the first day in which they were back open. And give you a look as to uh, how this all came together. Welcome into Shanghai Disneyland, where we are getting a sneak peek of what the new operations are going to look like for this park and reopening three and a half months after they had to shut down because of the novel coronavirus outbreak here in China. Now, normally, when you're in the park, as they reopen, you're gonna to have to wear a mask. We're able to take ours off because the crowd isn't in just yet. But as you can see, the preparations are underway. They've used this time to rethink how they're gonna have people coming in safely, keeping that social distance, and avoiding any sort of contact, not only with each other, but also with cast members. So it's gonna have things looking a little bit differently. I'm gonna take you outside the park to show you how we got in with Senior Vice President of Operations, Andrew Bolsting.
5: We ask our guests to do a few things now differently than before. One is that uh, we ask every one of our guests to have temperature screening as they arrive here at the resort. Uh, We also ask them to show their QR code, which is a uh, Shanghai-specific health code. We put a little more structured decaling and markers in place, so these are very clear don't stand here, (laughs) and then you stand in the blank space in between. As always, we uh, require government ID to redeem your tickets at the entrance, but we're also going to be Capturing government ID information for every guest that comes into the park, not just one per party as part of the traceability measures that we have in place now for the government guidelines.
4: Give us an idea, I mean, as we're walking
5: through, what folks will notice that's different. I mean, one thing that stands out to me is constant sanitation. (laughs) Yes, so we have a very dedicated team of custodial cleaners uh, that we've even increased the numbers of those throughout the park that are constantly wiping down all the surfaces. And, and noticing that parade go by, obviously a distance, but yes. you can still see the characters, Yes, not the big hug and high fives, right? Exactly, more, uh, more of a selfie moment and take yeah. the photos, but again, it gives the guests that ability to have that emotional moment and that connection. As you're walking
4: along the line here, you'll notice the places you can stop and the places you need to keep a distance. And then eventually, you make it to the attraction. Notice this, I want to point this out. As I go into number one, normally you have number two to go into. They've got it roped off. Stepping off the ride, the new normal. And they've got several more
5: along the way out ask for the guests understanding that for your health and safety the tables unavailable so basically we're asking the guests not to sit here sit there and again it creates kind of that separation uh, between all the different parties safe spacing even for the performances
4: this is one of the stages look here in the crowd pick a box that's where you and your family unit will stand keeping that distance
5: we'll be able to strike that right balance between the safety and health and confidence side and then the magic that we're able to deliver every day.
4: Do you feel in many ways that not only other parts of the company are, are looking yeah. here and other parks
5: hopefully you're going to be reopening but maybe even other companies Sure. Then let me see how they're doing it. Maybe this could help us reopen, too. Everywhere's a little bit different, though. There's different regulations. There's different environments. People are at different phases of the epidemic. But I think what we have can be a model, hopefully some inspiration for them, and they'll adapt it for what their local conditions are. Same thing with the other operators around the world. We, we communicate and we share. Um, in this type of environment where we want to focus on safety and health, that's, that's an area we all share together.
1: David, fascinating stuff. The, the, the question I, comes to my mind is, firstly, uh, in, those, in that scenario, I mean, can you still have fun if you're all sort of being socially distanced apart? And does anybody want to, I mean, I, I, over the medium term, will it just not all fall to pieces in the sense that you'll get more and more people going and social distancing will be impossible?
4: I will say the way they have done the ticketing and doing it online, you have to book a spot in advance and a timetable. So that's keeping crowds from gathering all at once. As far as the fun factor, Richard, I mean, the reality is with less people, you can go on more rides, you can go through them more often. So people are seeming to experience it uh, with a bit more quality, if you will, at times. And under the face mask, I can tell you for sure, you can still see smiles.
1: David Carver, who I suspect has been on most of the rides uh, and probably several times (laughs) with the advantage of social distancing. David, good to see you. Thank you, sir. In South Korea, (laughs) there's there's, (laughs) there's been the single biggest day jump in cases since April. And the reason is believed to be because of Seoul's nightclubs. Not much social distancing going on there, as Paula Hancock's reports.
6: A cluster of new cases here in Seoul is raising fears of a second wave here in South Korea. Now, we know that a 29-year-old man visited a nightclub district in Seoul called Itaewon on May the 2nd. He since tested positive and now officials are scrambling to try and find exactly who he could have been in contact with. So far, 86 cases have been confirmed, just linked to that one individual. Now, we know that uh, officials are trying to to track down 5,500 people that they believe were in that area over a two-week period trying to uh, make sure they can contain this outbreak. Now, they say they have tested more than 3,000 of them at this point. They're still waiting for the results of around 1,000 of them. Uh, But there are some they're still trying to track down. And the way they're doing that is they're using police cooperation. They are also getting mobile phone records of those who are believed to have been in the area and credit card usage Uh, records as well to try and make sure that they can contain this. Now, this has had a knock-on effect already. The education ministry saying that they're going to push back the opening of schools in South Korea. It was supposed to be as early as Wednesday, so two days away. It was going to be year three of high school was going to go back to school, and then it would be a phased reintroduction of students over a number of weeks. That has all now been pushed back by one week and will be uh, reviewed once again. Now, it just shows uh, that uh, that complacency is a, a very serious issue when it comes to this coronavirus. We heard from the South Korean president Moon Jae-in on Sunday, and he said it's not over until it is over. He said that there were warnings of a second wave by experts and that nobody can let their guard down. Paula Hancock's CNN Soul.
1: Paula, there. Now, these are the stories making news around the world as we look to an open uh, Wall Street opening, just about fifteen minutes away. Iranian state media say as nineteen navy personnel died in an accident at sea say it happened in the Strait of Hormuz and involved a support vessel taking part in naval exercises. No further details have been provided. And the State of Georgia's Attorney General is asking the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate what happened after the shooting of Ahmoud Arbery. The 25-year-old was out running in February when he was shot dead. That sparked widespread outrage. It took a further two months for the suspects who were white to be arrested. Coming up on that First Move, the CEO of Bookings.com, of Bookings Holdings, is with me to tell us exactly how, in, in reality, this is all going to work out as the openings and planes start flying. And the former Greek Prime Minister, George Papandreou, tells me if Europe's reopening plans are on the right track. In a moment. Talking about the First Move. The U.S. stock market opens in about 15 minutes from now, and all the futures are suggesting not a particularly dramatic, but a sharper lower open as we start the week. We're now down 1%, 250-odd points expected on the futures, and the Nasdaq is just off three-quarters of a percent, and it is because investors are now weighing up. The outlook of the nation reopening, how strong that will be, where the growth will be, and I think most crucially, which companies are going to be able to open in a meaningful way. Take, for example, the shares of Marriott, which are lower. It's a reported a 92% drop in first quarter profit. For 2020, the stock is down more than 40%. You can see that. And even though there's been a, a, a little tinge of a recovery, I, the, the gist of it is that people are saying that people won't be travelling for some time to come. Which is why Avianca, which only last year celebrated being 100 years old, is the second oldest airline in the world, depending on how you define these things. Well, Avianca has now, and by the way, it's the second largest airline in South America. It has now filed for bankruptcy protection. The Columbia-based operation submitted a voluntary petition because of the unforeseeable impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, in their words. The airline says 88% of countries where Avianca operates are still under total or partial travel restrictions. Airlines have warned of layoffs ahead. Joining me now is Glenn Fogel, CEO of Booking Holdings. The brands include Priceline and CAG. Glenn, good to have you with us, sir. Um, We we know... We know because the companies have told us IHG says it hopes to start flying meaningfully in June. Lufthansa says it'll put 160 planes back in the air. Qatar Airways is going to move to go back uh, flying again. Airbnb says in those countries that are reopening, the numbers are up. Now, what are you seeing?
7: Well, I think that there certainly are some green shoots in certain parts of the world, but they're very, very early. I think we have to recognize from some of the numbers you just quoted, and you're seeing Avianca going into bankruptcy, a lot of other airlines that are teetering. The fact is, this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint, and we're not going to instantly get back to great volumes for travel. Travel is going to take a long time. We were the first industry that came into problems because of this virus, and we're going to be the last guys probably out of it. We just have to recognize it's going to take a long time before we're going to be back to numbers that we saw in, say, 2019.
1: And so as you uh, as you forecast that ahead, just for your we'll come back to the, to the market in a moment. Let's just talk about your own company. Can you now have any reliability and foresight as to as to what your level of job losses will be? What restructuring you need to do or is it still very much dependent on how robust if it is there is a, a recovery?
7: So, we're looking at different scenarios, and we're very fortunate that we've gotten assistance from some governments, the UK with their furlough program. Uh, We applied to the Dutch government to get some assistance there. So, we've been able to maintain employment longer than many, many other people in the industry, and that's great. But we still have to recognize that we can only have the size of the company that matches up with the size of demand. And we're working on the scenarios, trying to figure out how fast do we think this is going to come back. But I was very clear last week on my earnings call, I said, This is not going to be quarters. This is going to be years before we have a full recovery.
1: What? If you are an airline or a hotel trying to entice people back... Look, I saw your comments about how everybody said after 9-11 they wouldn't fly, but pretty soon they were back again. And we know that tourism, by and large, after natural or man-made disasters, does recover to something approaching normal levels quite quickly. Do you think that this is going to be the case here?
7: Well, I think yes, but it's dependent on people feeling safe. That's the critical issue. You've got to have either a vaccine that's effective or treatments that are effective so people feel comfortable that when they get onto a plane that they're not going to get a life-threatening disease. Now, our company, we're somewhat fortunate that we are almost all accommodations, not air. And people can get in their car, and they can go somewhere in the car. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing, in looking at our booking window, a lot of very close-in stuff that's going hyper-local, not traveling far, very local, getting to hotel. Some of the stuff far out, we are seeing who are hoping for something that will be opened up and it'll be safe and they're getting some great prices months and months and months from now, hoping that it'll be okay and they're willing to book now for that. And because so much of our stuff is totally refundable or cancelable, they're willing to, you know, why not lock up that price now? And if they have to cancel later, they'll cancel later.
1: Right. The number of people, myself included, that still have reservations, particularly airlines and things that, that have not been refunded. Uh, hotels have been pretty good about refunding. And this is turning into a major industry-wide problem.
7: No, it's it's really a very difficult, difficult situation for so many people. And, and we're right in the middle of this, and I see it. And we've been, uh, our people, our customer service people have been just Uh, The the numbers of calls and people wanting cancellations or changes in their travel plans, it's been unbelievable, multiples of what we've ever seen. And we're doing everything we can. But here's the fact. You have a customer. They say they want to cancel. And we say, absolutely. And we talk to the hotels if we can get in touch with the hotel. Many hotels have closed down throughout the world. There's no one in contact with them to get that money to the customer. We're working through it as best we can. And we just ask everyone for patience. We get it. It's hard right now. We know that this is a problem.
1: I mean, I mean, I mean, I I you mean, that you have the same problem that people like myself do, which is getting through to the various hotels or airlines simply to say thank you. Well say, can we have our money back? Uh, thank you, Dan. Good to see you. I appreciate it. Thank you. In a moment, the opening bell, what such as it is at the New York Stock Exchange. They've let me loose on first move. Julia's having the day off. Um, And uh, welcome back to first move. I'm Richard Quest. The opening bell has rung and the U.S. markets have opened and they are off to business in a sort of down day. Start of a new week. And what's interesting, um, I think it's going to rally. Don't ask me why, except that an hour ago when we, or half an hour ago when we started, we were off more than that. We're down one percent on it. But there seems to be a general no, 24,097 is being hold, uh, held for the moment. There are concerns about a second wave because everybody's talking about it as the reopening happens. The number of people who have died from coronavirus or really coronavirus related and can be attributed is now fast approaching 80,000 in the United States. We're going to get uh, in the United Kingdom a report on Q1 GDP numbers. This, as the UK has a somewhat confused opening policy, which we heard about talking earlier from Clarissa Ward. And the US and China are to report US uh, retail sales numbers. They'll be bad, but at least in the case of China, we might get an indication. On exactly how the pickup is taking place. Now the company is pretty much reopened. Now joining me now is Ed Lazier, the professor of economics at Stanford University, the former economic advisor and uh, President Bush. He joins me now. Good to see you, professor. Now, uh, we know nice the numbers are pretty awful and that the job, the yep. job numbers was horrible. Um, but, but, but how much worse do you expect it to get? Bearing in mind that the payroll numbers were taken earlier on in the month.
8: Right. Well, that's the point I was going to make. That's a good point. Uh, So the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which compiles the numbers, does the analysis, they go out and survey around the 12th of the month, a few days, one side or the other, but uh, we're talking about data that is now almost a month old. And the other thing we know, of course, is that the uh, new claims, initial unemployment insurance claims, have been just astronomical in terms of their numbers. So if you added those to together and you put those on top of the number that we had unemployed in back in February before we started this, uh, we are now up above 40 million people unemployed. So that would actually translate, unfortunately, into depression-level unemployment rates somewhere in the mid-20s. And that's probably where we are right now. So the 14.7 that we saw on Friday is a pretty significant understatement uh, of the current unemployment rate.
1: I, I don't in any way wish to minimize the awfulness of the crisis facing those people who are affected. But as an economist, where you can see the reason why, and you can see that many of those people class themselves as temporary unemployed, what do you think we look like after the reopening, say for example, by Christmas?
8: Yeah, Uh, well, uh, again, the question is how long do we stay closed? Uh, If it is temporary and, you know, every day it's longer and longer, although we are starting to reopen right now. Uh, If it is temporary, we can bounce back pretty quickly. And when I say pretty quickly, uh, one of the things that we know, uh, and this is standard in every recession, it's not unique to this one, uh, is that the first thing that picks up is output. So you'll see sales pick up, you'll see production pick up. Uh, That happens before employment picks up. And the, the reason for that, of course, is that you have a lot of slack labor Uh, in the firms, and particularly right now with the PPP program, that exacerbates that effect. Then after that, you'll see employment pick up. And then finally, at the end, when we're really hitting on all cylinders, then you'll start to see wages pick up. So um, we are significantly away from that. I would guess Christmas, I think, is optimistic. We'll start to see pickup, but Christmas would be optimistic in terms of getting back to where we are now. I, I don't think anybody thinks we'll be there by then.
1: No, but but, but but can I just challenge, if I may, sir, that that scenario you, 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 you set out would have been for a normal garden variety right. type of recession or even a, a severe one. But in this case, companies, manufacturing especially, uh, furloughed their workers to get them onto the government's unemployment books. But they can't start that process of remanufacturing until they take them back on again. I guess what we're all looking for is what is the structural number of people who will not come back.
8: Right. Yeah. No, I I agree with you, although I think the point I made, we already see in the numbers. So if you look at um, average weekly hours from the jobs report, what you saw is average hours actually went up. That's highly unusual when you're going into a recession, when things are declining. And the reason that hours went up is what they're doing is they laid people off and then they're using the people that they have uh, at a higher pace. So it is certainly the case that this is a different kind of recession. That's kind of the good news. Because it is a supply recession, rather than a demand recession, it has uh, the right. ability to come back much more quickly. And I'm, I'm much more optimistic than I would be in a normal recession. That said, the longer it goes, the longer we start seeing things like bankruptcies and credit market constraints and so forth. So um, we need to we need to get going quickly before this does come back and become a very long term financial crisis kind of recession on top of what we have right now.
1: Professor, thank you. I'm always so impressed uh, from the West Coast when people get up so, so early and keep almost East Coast time. Just sort of realise as we came to the end there that it's 6.30 in the morning for you, sir. Um, and your, your bright breezy and talking economics, which is an achievement in itself at this time for you, sir. Uh, have a good breakfast uh, after we finish. Right. Good thank to you, see you, sir. sir. Thank you.
8: Thank <laughs> you.
1: The big... The big issue, of course, is one of a vaccine. Johnson & Johnson is making a big push for coronavirus vaccines. It's not alone. Uh, The Oxford University team is supposedly in the lead. And you have got numerous different groups tying up academics with those who create the biochemistry and those companies who actually manage to have large scale production, usually the large pharma. CNN's Anna Stewart reports.
9: At least 100 COVID-19 vaccines are in development around the world, from small biotech firms and university research groups to the big pharmaceutical companies. Eight groups have broken through to the next phase, human trials. If one succeeds and gets regulatory approval from individual countries, the next challenge begins, producing enough vaccine for the world. When you look at the biggest
1: vaccine manufacturers, There may be five in the industrialised world able and with skill set know-how to manufacture at large scales. And even if you combine their capacity and they don't have excess
10: capacity, they might struggle to come up with the volumes you need right now.
9: Pharmaceutical companies are forming partnerships even united they could face major manufacturing challenges
1: at the end of the day you may have a vaccine but then you find that you don't have enough virus uh, you, the bottleneck might be at the end
2: of the supply chain
9: the entire world needs this vaccine but who gets it
2: first in any product um, that is um, has inadequate supply to meet all of the demand. There will always be interests at heart to uh, to serve uh, you know, the primary interests of, of those who are in control of, of the product.
9: There are concerns countries could put national interests first.
1: Everybody wants to get a vaccine for their country, for the safety
7: of their country, and if possible, make it available to the world.
9: How a vaccine is shared is a question for politicians, and it needs to be answered soon.
2: If everything went perfectly well, we might be able to see early licensure of those products um, near the end of 2020. I've never seen a product where everything goes as planned. Maybe we'll get lucky.
9: And if we do, there are further challenges ahead to vaccinate the world. Anna Stewart, CNN, London.
1: As we continue, we'll be going to Greece and talking to the former Prime Minister. Now, the country has been widely praised for the way it's held the coronavirus and the lockdown. Now we need to consider the reopening. It's underway. Will they be as successful at containing the virus now the country's open for business or getting there? It is first move. It is the start of a week. i would request Julia is off today. Europe opens up, there'll be particular interest and concern watching what's happening in Greece. Athens has done a very good job at containing the virus at the height of the pandemic, and now everybody wants to know whether it'll be able to continue that as the company reopens. There have been people on the streets, and shops are starting to reopen. George Papandreou is the former Prime Minister of Greece. He joins me via Skype from Athens. Uh, it is now mid May, the weather has turned, it is beautiful. Probably the best time of the year to be Truly. in Greece and in Athens. Um, but uh, George, the Richard. great concern, the the great concern at the way in which a reopening could destroy the good work that's been done so far. Well, first
10: of all, Richard, it's great to hear from you. And I know you've gone through this uh, COVID adventure and I'm uh, glad you're up and well and uh, must have been a harrowing experience and uh, I think we all have a sense of the difficulties around the world. Maybe it's the first time in the world that everybody has similar feelings, experience, uh, anguish, fear, hope, uh, empathy, solidarity, tears in our eyes, for seeing the heroes, frontline heroes. Uh, maybe this shows that if we, we really should be able to work together. And uh, in Greece, uh, we're proud that uh, we were able to deal with this quickly uh, compared with the crisis we went through. You remember, we used to talk about this 10 years ago, the financial crisis. Greece uh, came together. There was a consensus, opposition parties and the government. I think a mature self-discipline of the the citizens of Greece shows that a democracy can do this. It doesn't have to be an authoritarian regime. We can do it self-disciplined, working together. And uh, we learned in a humble way from others uh, and and from the experts. We got away from the fake news and the conspiracy theories, which we had a lot of in 2010. Uh, But you're right. Now is going to be the test. Uh, We have, of course, uh, really flattened the curve. Uh, Most of our islands, not all our islands, are completely corona-free. We uh, do hope then that we are going to get guidelines, hopefully soon, from the European Union on the Schengen area, very strict guidelines as to how hotels, transportation will work, so that we can open up, uh, obviously to a much smaller number, but still open up and keep the tourist industry alive. But of course, there's the other issues that every country is facing: um, how we open up shops, uh, opening up right. uh, uh, taverns, and so on.
1: So, with that in 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 mind does Greece, uh, I suppose, of course, having suffered the the awfulness of the austerity during the financial crisis, what do you see as being Greece's needs going forward? The EU has already apologised to Italy for the way it was treated. I'm sure some people in Greece would feel they'd like an apology, too, for the way they were treated. But what are you going to need, do you think, from the Europeans?
10: We need to work together, and this is not just a European issue. You can see it in the United States, where there's quite—it's quite, it's quite the, the, the disparate, the differences between the states, the different states, and, and this federal government. Europe, of course, are different countries, but working uh, uh, in unison is very important. First of all, dealing with issues like supplies, procurement—a uh, common, a common approach. But now there will be a question of an economic, financial help and stimulus. Uh, we would, I think the countries, particularly like Greece, from my experience, we would need euro bonds uh, on the one hand, but I would say also fiscal transfers. We are going, There's going to be a huge shock for many countries. Uh, I don't want to go back to what the initial response in 2008 was in Europe, where they said, OK, we simply uh, soften the rules, the master rules of budget and, uh, and state aid, because that will actually help certain countries that are in a better position, uh, richer economies, the poor economies will suffer because they will have higher costs for debt. Uh, right, but, higher, but, uh, they won't be able to, to, to support their their, their their industries. We need to have a common fiscal policy in dealing with this issue.
1: I mean, you, you had me nearly leaping out the chair when you talked about fiscal transfers and, uh, if you like, coronavirus bonds, which... The northern countries have pretty much written off as not happening. Is that a debate that's still worth opening?
10: I think it is because, you know, we're talking about the survival of Europe. We're not talking about one country versus another. I think we have to get away from the blaming and shaming, saying, you know, some countries have, you know, worse off debts. I mean, we have, of course, went through this whole crisis. Uh, and, and I also I think we need to do this quickly. The, the experience that I had and we had in 2010 was we took too little measures, too late, and the crisis just deepened, deepened, deepened. There was a contagion then that was in the markets, the fear of the markets towards the uh, different countries, and the cost on human unemployment, uh, 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 the, the economy, the suffering of, of, our, of our citizens created... Huge populism, euroskepticism, and now sure. it could get worse. I fear that if we don't right. work together, this is not a question this is not a question of simply solidarity. It's a question of the European project. Is the European project really working to help us all get out of this? And uh, you know if one country falls, uh, everyone will fall. If Italy okay. falls, this is going to be a major problem for the rest of Europe.
1: Good to see you. George. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good uh,
10: to see you, Richard. Beautiful
1: scenery, beautiful country. Yeah, looking scenery, forward to my next I think visit. also thank when, you, we sir. Move,
10: when we move. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard.
1: Thank you. That in just a moment, Elon Musk says he's going to move. He's going to move out of California and to Texas. We'll explain why after break. Elon Musk is suing one of the counties in California where his factory is based after the county refused to allow him to reopen the factory or at least plan to start the reopening. Now he says he'll move the plant and the company's headquarters to Texas. Claire Sebastian is with me. How real is this threat?
11: It would be sort of a a big step for Elon Musk, uh, Richard, to do that. But he is certainly serious. He threatened the lawsuit. It has now been filed uh, in California against Alameda County, which is where the Fremont factory, Tesla's biggest uh, factory making the Model 3, uh, is based. That, by the way, has been shut down since the end of March. And the background to this, the reason why Musk is now so upset is that that California as a state has started to allow manufacturing sites to reopen. But Alameda County, where the Fremont factory is located, has gone its own way, has essentially said that their stay-at-home shelter-in-place order will stay in place until the end of May, which means that Tesla's uh, hoped-for reopening in the middle of May isn't going to happen. This is why Elon Musk went on a Full on Twitter rant on Saturday. Richard tweeting, frankly, this is the final straw. Tesla will now move its HQ and future programs to Texas slash Nevada immediately. If we even retain Fremont manufacturing activity at all, it will be dependent on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in California. And to an extent, you can understand his frustration. Even in Michigan, where we know that the outbreak has been pretty severe, they are going to start to reopen manufacturing facilities. The United Auto Workers Union has said that their workers will start to return on May 18th. And Tesla, as we know, Elon Musk, Richard, is a man in a hurry.
1: Right. But, but uh, the, the reality and the practicality, let's just say he's allowed to reopen in, say, two or three weeks or another month's time. Yeah. He's not going to move an entire car plant, is he?
11: I mean, look, Dan Ives said in a note, uh, he's from Wedbush, that, that this would be a high-stakes poker game. A, it would take 12 to 18 months to, to shift his entire car plant. That would potentially reveal kinks in the, in the manufacturing. He might have delays. He doesn't He doesn't want that. He's been targeting half a million cars produced this year. He just made a surprise profit. He doesn't want to upend that. So, look, I think he has been talking about Texas before. Maybe he's thinking of opening a separate new plant in Texas, perhaps to produce the cyber truck. But, but I think the idea of shifting the entire entire... entire Fremont operation, which really is the beating heart of Tesla's manufacturing to a different state, would be a huge deal for the company and would lead to to sort of interruptions as they went along?
1: Claire Sebastian. Keep watching. Keep listening. See, see who's saying what. Thank you, Claire Sebastian. Now, before I leave you tonight and this morning, I should say, um, well, it's all these time differences. Uh, let's have a look at the markets, a final look at the markets. Uh, we started off lower half an hour ago, and now we need to get an indication of the way they're moving. And they are p- coming back just a tad, not much, uh, down 212 points. They were down more. A short while ago, Um, but they are coming back, and we have a long way to go between now and four o'clock this afternoon. But between three and four this afternoon in New York, that's when I'll be with you for Quest Means Business. I shall return to move amongst you during that hour. Julia is back tomorrow. Sanity returns. Um, They've let me loose at the helm, and now we'll survey what wreckage remains. Julia's back tomorrow. I'll see you at Quest Means Business in a few hours from now. Whatever you're up to between now and then, I hope it's profitable.